I'm in a different world. It's it's like they, like there's a a barrier to getting back to consensus reality or kind of normal reality. The trauma of my parents divorcing and the trauma of potentially getting divorced myself was just too much for me to deal with. Um, we found in our Western culture, the more that we try to make these experiences go away, the more that they start to happen, the more they happen. Because we don't, we don't, we don't do the learning part. We we do the let's get rid of it part. Breakdown Wake Up is about discovering the groundbreaking wisdom within our most challenging life stories. I'm Meg Mateer, a psychology nerd turned business consultant and entrepreneur. Join me to hear from leaders about when things in their lives were breaking down and to listen for the wisdom waking up. Along the way, we'll explore fresh perspectives like how distress is a driver of success, not a barrier to it, how our personal and professional lives are inherently connected, and how our individual experiences can help solve broader societal challenges. Hello once again from sunny Portugal. I have now actually started walking the Portuguese route of the Camino de Santiago, So uh, this journey is about a 12 to 15 day hike that takes me through and up the coast of Portugal to see so much of this amazing country. And to do it by foot is just so incredible because I find when I'm really being physically active that I get not only more connected to myself, but also to the surroundings. And so I'm able to see parts of this country that I would never be able to if I was traveling in any other way. So in this episode, I speak with Oryx Cohen, and he's a good friend of mine and advisor to Empatico. And he works as the chief operating officer of a really interesting peer-run mental health uh, organization. And Oryx and I talk about his experience of extreme or altered states um, that can sometimes be categorized as psychosis. But in Oryx's experience, this journey for him has been his body's way of moving outside of consensus reality because he can't manage an event or a particular theme in his life. So it's actually a really useful or productive way of protecting and supporting himself during periods or, again, relationships in his life that or events that are just too challenging to face in the moment. And he talks about these extreme states coming in as a result of a few things. Usually it's related to a particularly stressful period in his life where he has those stressors 
related to work or relationships, etc. And that combined with something that for him either in the present moment or in the past was traumatic, this unresolved trauma that he talks about. So Oryx shares his story about one of those extreme or altered states and what wisdom was waking up for him in that experience. Oryx, it's so great to have you on the Breakdown Wake Up podcast. Well, it's great to be here. I've been looking forward to it. You are the Chief Operating Officer of the National Empowerment Center, an ex-patient-run organization whose mission is to carry a message of recovery, empowerment, hope, and healing to people with lived experience of mental health challenges, trauma, and or extreme states of consciousness. As part of this role, you train organizations and groups in a process called emotional CPR, which is designed to teach people to assist others through an emotional crisis. You were also formerly co-director of the Western Massachusetts Recovery Learning Community and the co-founder of the Freedom Center. You have served on several boards and committees internationally, nationally, and regionally, including the International Network Towards Alternatives for Recovery, the National Association for Rights Protection and Advocacy, and the U.S. Chapter of the Hearing Voices Network. You are the co-producer and the subject of the award-winning social action documentary, Healing Voices. You are currently adjunct faculty in the Westfield State College Psychology Department, You have a bachelor's degree in psychology and a master's in public administration. Welcome, Oryx. Thank you. Uh, Again, it's it's really good to be here. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while, and I've always enjoyed every uh, collaboration we've had. Yeah, you and I know each other a bit. We met initially to have you help me in my organization with Empatico, and you've been an amazing leader and board of advisor member of the organization. So I really appreciate your support and guidance in my own entrepreneurial journey. Yeah, well, I think it's a wonderful organization, um, and it was a mission that I was very on board with and kind of was really in line with what I want to do, which is reach more than just the choir of people who identify with lived experience with mental health issues or work within in that field, because I think these issues affect everyone. And, and that's what I appreciate about this podcast as well, is uh, it's really designed for everyone. So tell me a little bit um, more about what you're up to right now with the National Empowerment Center. We're one of five federally funded, so the federal government provides the bulk of our funding as a technical assistance center in mental health. And we're one of five peer-run organizations in mental health that are funded. So it's actually pretty unique around the world that um, federal government is supporting peer support and peer-run organizations in mental health. And our primary training right now that we're putting a lot of energy into is called emotional CPR, which you mentioned. And that's a training for anyone to be able to learn some skills and ways of being to be able to support others through emotional crises. 
and actually just improve communication with each other. So we've had quite a variety of people and organizations take interest in our emotional CPR training, which is now available online. So that's been a big part of uh, what we're doing right now amidst this crisis is converting everything to online and virtual out of necessity. But that's been really successful with emotional CPR. Uh, we're able to offer it uh, online right now. We've also uh, historically supported peer-run organizations in states across the country to develop, and we've you know given them some leadership development training and so National Empowerment Center, we're pr primarily um, training and education uh, organization. Great. And just for the audience members that aren't familiar, so a peer organization is um, one that is run or it employs and, and is founded by people with their own lived experience with mental health challenges. Yes. It's really inspiring what you're doing. And it's so cool that the emotional CPR training is now online so it can really reach a lot more people. And I've done that training with you. And I would say like, it absolutely is about being with people, you know, fully present with people who are going through a crisis state. But it also is about just how we can be more present with each other in general and, and feel more deeply connected beyond our normal sort of conversations that we can drop a bit more deeply into the emotional space. So it's great that you guys are expanding that program. Yeah, definitely. And so that's that's my day job. And I moonlight as a movie producer, as you mentioned. So <laughs> <laughs> um, it's totally separate from the day job, but um, I really enjoyed getting involved in the film industry and had a vision of of creating a documentary um, that presented kind of a different perspective on mental health, one that's not heard in the mainstream, um, led again by peers in mental health, and um, w was able to meet a, an independent uh, filmmaker named P.J. Moynihan, who, uh, that's what he does, he's a professional, has made a lot of different films and documentaries, and um, he took an interest in the in the topic, and we were able to create a film called Healing Voices over the course of about five years. took a took a long time, um, and we released it a few years ago, and um, it's had quite a bit of traction and success around the world. Um, and again, it, it's geared towards anyone to be able to watch the movie and learn something, um, and, and also just watch a really well made film <laughs> with art and music and interesting storylines. Um, and I'm one of them actually, <laughs> uh, which you'll hear a bit about my story, but um, we captured some of that in the, in the film. And it's great too, because the documentary really weaves together four different stories of people with their own experience of mental health challenges and extreme states. So you really get a peek into the, the thoughts and the experiences of these four people, including you. Right. Yeah. And it's funny, I wasn't um, originally intended to, to be one of the, the focus uh, characters, the, the sub focus subjects. I was more meant to be like a expert or talking head type, but then there became a reason why I, I was included 
as a subject. My story just got too interesting to not <laughs> have me <laughs> have me as a subject. So, so that very interesting story is something that we have the pleasure also of hearing. So, tell me, like a little bit. So, where does this breakdown, wake up experience in your life start, or where do you want it to start? Well, yeah, I thought about this, and I think I will start in 2013. But I, I think the breakdown piece uh, actually started much earlier than that. I had some difficult experiences as a child. You know, my parents being divorced at a very young age was a major impact. Growing up in a world where I was told certain things about the way life was, but then looking around and seeing a world that was actually different uh, from what was described, I guess, in a more idyllic way. I grew up with a lot of feelings like, what's wrong with me? Like, you know, um, everybody else is happy and you know, why can't I be happy like everyone else? <laughs> you know, the, the divorce didn't help and um, you know, growing up uh, with no money, I I don't think helped. Uh, growing up <clears throat> with a Jewish background um, in a very much Christian world, so I, a lot of things that I kind of battled. I was more of a more of a loner, I guess. But I made I managed to just kind of get through life. But that's why I say the breakdown was already kind of starting to happen. But when you, when you could really see it was uh, a few of these major breakdowns or um, altered states. Some people call it psychosis. I like to call it altered state or extreme states that I've been through. So I'll start with uh, 2013, which was actually my third major um, altered state. The first one happened in 1999, so that's like a 14-year span. And so for each of these, it's it's been a lot of stress in my life combined with unresolved trauma um, that I think have led to these. And what it looks like for me when I've had these kind of major breakdown experiences Um and I'll just give you an example. This was, um, again, 2013, and I was the lead organizer of our largest peer-run, and, and again, that's peers in mental health, people with lived experience. We run a very large conference called the Alternatives Conference. And this was um, the first year that I had the role of the primary organizer of the conference. So... I was putting a lot of pressure on myself to do a lot with it. I probably didn't delegate as much as I could have. Uh, maybe I didn't get as much support as I could have, but I didn't ask for that support. And we put together a wonderful conference, but it was a lot of work. <laughs> it was a lot of work. And what we also put on a film festival. And so I was getting up, and you know, it's like a five-day conference, and I was getting up at like 5.30, in the morning, starting to work and prepare. And then this film festival kicked my butt. <laughs> it went to like 10 p.m. So I was working way too much. And it got to a point where I wasn't sleeping very well. 
and I was really stressed out. Uh, and again, these things are, have also been combined with unresolved trauma, like I said. So this particular, at this point in my life, I was having some uh, difficulties in my marriage, which I think mostly had to do with my own issues and my own unresolved trauma of my parents being divorced when I was very young. And so I think we had some, you know, fairly typical issues in a marriage that I blew was blowing way up and really thinking about getting a divorce, which is a stress, obviously very stressful. Um, you know, we, having two young children at the time, too, involves. So those two things combined. And I remember it was the last night of the conference, and I was just praying that I would sleep because I was just so tense and not being able to sleep. And I knew I'd, it's in the past, it's been uh, trouble, the trouble sign when I can't sleep. So I was just like, please, God, let me sleep tonight. <laughs> and I didn't sleep very much at all. I, I, I don't know if I really even slept. But I went back at it, you know, <laughs> did the morning. And that was my last responsibility <laughs> for the comp was, was that morning. I remember being on stage in this beautiful ballroom and uh, people are leaving and I'm cleaning up my laptop and things. And all of a sudden, which happened in the other couple of instances, I have... Um, a complex, what's called a complex partial seizure. So I had, I literally have a seizure, but I don't remember having a seizure. I, so my head went back and my eyes rolled back into my back of my head and I'm out for a couple of seconds having this seizure. And when I come to, I'm looking up and I'm looking straight into the ballroom lights <laughs> and the first, and when I came to, I was like, I died. That was the, that was my interpretation that I had died and I woke up and I saw the light. And so, but so obviously I was very confused. Um, but then I was looking around and I did recognize the ballroom. And, but I had in my head that I had just died and woken up. And luckily, my friend Jen, who is actually in the film as well, uh, was at the conference and she noticed I wasn't doing well and she helped guide me back to my room. She was a real primary support to me while I was going through stuff. She helped me kind of reorient. And, you know, a part of it was that I had a realization that um, life is eternal. And she kind of backed that up. Um, yeah, as far as we know, life, you know, that's her belief system and experience. I was having this very spiritual experience and spiritual opening and realizations and it was all very intense and and I was going through this um exploration of you know was I meant to be with my wife was I not and it was accompanied by a lot of visions do you remember what you saw i remember quite a few of my visions i i had did a lot of space travel so i was going through the universe and like spaceships and exploring different planets and things. And through that exploration, I actually 
at one point discovered that my wife is my soulmate. So that was a powerful experience. And I remember I was so like in the realm of visions and space and time travel that I had to write down like her full name and planet Earth and (laughs) (laughs) so that you could find her when you were traveling. (laughs) Right. That was a big part of the the visioning. I mean I had some other visions that went back to being a younger child. Um, I think around the time where my parents got divorced and things. You went back into those memories, you mean? Yeah, some earlier memories and kind of played some stuff out from earlier in uh, childhood. And, and all the while I had people sitting with me and supporting me and trying to process and make sense of what I was going through, which is very different from the other two times that I've been through through these experiences where I just ended up being taken immediately to a hospital and um, where they basically what they try to do at a hospital is they um, try to make these experiences stop as soon as possible. And they don't um, ask you about them or try to make meaning out of anything that you're going through. Um, they just want to kind of make it stop. And this was, um, so this was a real gift to me in a way to have people around me to let me process through it. Um, and I think it's a big reason why I've been able to learn so much from this experience, this last experience, kind of more integrate these experiences into my life. And I, I haven't been overwhelmed, so overwhelmed since then and that was 2013 by the i tell this story and then people you know assume that oh you must have been out of work for a while this was like could was devastating or cuz i did end up being after this wonderful group of people helped me to get from austin to boston back home on a very long uh, van ride some things happened when I got back and it became too much for the people around me and for me. So I ended up in a hospital for about a week and before I got into a peer respite, which a peer respite is a respite that's run by people who have been through the experience, similar experience. And that was really helpful. I, I went to the peer respite in Massachusetts uh, called AFIA, the AFIA house. And that was, that was wonderful. These these altered states for me when I'm is like I'm in a different world, uh, and it, it's it's hard. It's it's like they, like there's a a barrier to getting back to consensus reality or a kind of normal reality or where I feel like I'm in more control. Yeah, so it took me a while to get back to feeling that way. That particular time, the more states I've been in, the more aware I've been. That's also a myth that people who get in these states, you know, have no insight or no recognition of where they're at. I knew I was in a state. I just didn't know how to get out (laughs) of the state. It's like, okay, there's this barrier. How do I get across this? How do I get across the barrier? (laughs) (laughs) Um. And, and what's the, what is it like, um, you know, I know you mentioned that you had like some visions and things, but is there also this feeling that like you can still recognize aspects of what's around you, but you still feel like 
some sort of energetic barrier or? Yeah, no, I've, I'm just, I was just very aware that I was in this state and I, w- I was a lot quieter than I normally am, more focused on the visions that were happening. So more internal, less aware of, um, I guess, how I'm impacting other people. But at the same time, again, recognizing that I'm in that state. And yes, I'm able to connect, have real connections with people, kind of know what's going on in the physical. I was most connected on this road trip when we went out to dinner. My supporters would actually have me um, use Yelp and and look at the reviews of the restaurants and We'd, we'd all go out and then I would just be fine in the restaurant having a connected conversation and be there and maybe something about the food. I really like to eat good, you know, good food. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, you know, later on at the hotel, I'd be going through my visions and maybe yelling or screaming something or, you know, I have a tough time controlling what uh, came out of my mouth when I did talk. Um, <laughs> so... That's another myth that you can't connect with someone who's in quote unquote psychosis or altered state that they're totally gone and it's not you're not you're not even it's not even worth trying. That is that's just not true. And and that's um that's what we teach in emotional CPR is emotional CPR is a way to connect with anybody, no matter what kind of mind state they're in. They're not totally lost. <laughs> they're they're going through something important and it may not be what you're going through or you may not be able to relate to it, but whatever they're going through is very real for them. Um, it's a very real experience and there is a way to connect with people in all kinds of different states. So uh, again, I was very lucky to have folks who are trained in emotional CPR with me and they were able to connect with me in a very, in very real way. Um, and it was so it ended up being a very powerful experience for everyone involved, um, me just being the, the person at the center. But I was able to get through that experience um, and slowly, you know, just get more grounded and connected with consensus reality, so to speak. Um, and just having, yeah, it, it takes a while to... Uh, for when I when I when I'm in those states and I and I kind of get back to the other side and um, there's kind of I call it reentry. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. What does that look like? Some someone described this experience as like, "Hey, you're a, you're a psychonaut, a psych like an astronaut." Yeah, psychonaut. psychonaut. Yeah, exactly. Exploring the realms of our psyches and then reentry is like coming back through the atmosphere and then. It's not difficult. A difficult can be difficult. Yeah, um, get your feet back on the ground. And what was that like for you? What was what was the sort of re-entry phase for you? One of the hindrances, and I know it's helpful for a lot of folks, but being put on so many heavy-duty psych drugs just really slows you down. Like I was on, they put me on Risperidol and Depakote and I was on, you know, a lot to help slow me down, um, which maybe makes sense for me. I'll, I'll speak for myself for a very brief period to get 
more slow down and to help with sleep, especially for me to get my sleep regulated again. But this thing about keeping people on these heavy duty things, like it slows you, it slows you down so much. It was difficult to like walk. It was difficult to move. Once, once I was back in, you know, consensus reality, then I'm just like completely slowed down. So just like physically, it was tough to do things, but you know, do, doing the work that I had done for so many years now, I was able to to get a really good psychiatrist who helped me come off the the drugs, but also helped me process some things that happened as well. And and of course, just being a part of this peer work, that having a lot of peer support um, and friends, and my wife uh, and my kids supporting me, um, that that was all really helpful. And so, yeah, I wasn't out of work for two months or six months or anything like that. I actually started back at work uh, while I was in the peer respite. I was like, I want to, I want to get to work. Um, and so it really didn't impede my work at all, um, which is actually a beautiful thing about doing peer work is um, you know, here I was uh, the COO of the organization and um, the CEO and everybody else who worked there just had a lot of support and, and understanding uh, that, you know, this these types of things may happen and we'll work with you. And, you know, we're not going to fire you. We're not going to have you take a leave of absence or anything. And they were also very good about um, not being – not being public at the time of what was happening because we are a federally funded organization and there are, we do have people who don't like us very much. And if they got wind that the, the organizer of the conference, the COO of the organization was going through this, they could try to make us look bad, you know? So this was all, all the support was done very discreetly um, until we decided to put it in a major movie. <laughs> That's when it really came out in a big way. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah. So I wasn't meant to be a, uh, a major subject of the film. But um, one of the things as a producer that I wanted to see happen in the movie Healing Voices was that we um, depict someone who's going through a major crisis in real time and and show their journey, whether that's taking medication, you know, weaning off of medication, uh, finding peer support, finding alternatives, whatever it is, just show their journey of healing in real time. Um, we never found any, we've actually found a lot of people going through crisis, but nobody who wanted to be on camera <laughs> during their, you know, really intense crisis. So it ended up, I think it was, uh, it ended up being the way it needed to be because uh, it wasn't planned, but, but it ended up being me, the person saying, hey, we need this. Just, okay, put me on camera. And um, so one of the most powerful scenes of the film, I think, is happens in the peer respite there, right? During, during that uh, crisis in 2013. And then we're able to show... Um, you know, that's not the end point. Um, we're able to show uh, what I've learned from that experience about a year later. 
And then I think as far as the wake up part, it also comes full circle sort of in 2017, which is the next time that our organization is charged with organizing the Alternatives Conference again. This time we decided to do it in Boston, which is in my backyard. So I didn't have to go from Austin to Boston if anything happened. <laughs> I was already in Boston. <laughs> um, but it was, an, again, a very nice hotel, the Park Plaza Hotel. Um, and I learned a lot from the 2013 experience. Also, I was not going through any major crises. The mar- my marriage was solid at that point. It continues to be very good and solid um, to to this day. Um so, uh, I, and I've kind of figured out that I can, I don't need to go into an altered state to deal with my trauma, that I can find ways to deal with trauma and, and consensus reality. But I also learned, um, as an organizer to, uh, to, to use my team a little bit better and have people do, do more and me do less. <laughs> so, I'm not going to lie, though. It was anytime you're the lead organizer for a conference, it is stressful. It's stressful. There's a lot of work, and it's stressful. And but I was I handled it pretty well, I think. And I didn't sleep as great as I usually sleep, but I wasn't too worried about it. And then the last again, the last day of the conference, I'm walking through this another beautiful ballroom. Probably even more beautiful than the uh, the Hyatt Regency in Austin. This Park Plaza in Boston. Oh my, oh my God! Amazing ballroom. And so I'm wa- and seeing all these people, like a thousand people, in the ballroom, and it just comes to me that you know we we are all one. We are this feeling of oneness. We are all one. We're we're yes, we're different. We're separate, but we're one. And it was this deeply spiritual experience. And it's one that may have taken me to the <laughs> to those altered states in the past, just being kind of overwhelmed with this feeling of spirituality and connectedness. But I was able to just sit with it and say, you know what, this is this doesn't need to be anything. I don't need to go anywhere. This is just the way it is. This is um, beautiful and just sit with it and be with it. And I was able to do that and just stay connected. And so I'll remember that experience as a wake up experience for me where I didn't need to go into that altered state um, and just experience the reality of a kind of spiritual, spiritually connected experience. It's funny what comes to my mind also when you said this landing story was like to go back to the psychonaut um, reference. I'm picturing you in this, you know, spaceship or something. And you're like each time you're going out into space, you're learning how to steer that spaceship. So like this last experience, like you went in this little bit, like into this spiritual feeling, but you could also very, very much bring yourself, stay connected to where you were there and sort of navigate that space. Definitely. <laughs> I feel like figuring out how to drive the, the ship a little bit better. 
Exactly. Well, it's funny. I think we all, like all of us need to, need more tools to learn how to drive our own like sort of emotional or relational ships, if you will, right? We haven't really been given that training in our culture where we learn how to support and manage our emotions or downregulate our alarm system and things like that. Um, and then some of us have the uh, opportunity to have these spaceships that are super powerful and that blast off into other places. And so it's also something to learn how to navigate or drive. Yeah. It's a really interesting story, Oryx. And it like a number of themes came up for me when you were sharing this. I think one of the things that you mentioned was that when you were in this altered state, that you were quite quiet um, in that space, more quiet than you are normally. And but you were also talking about people being really connected to you in this place. And so one of the themes that came up for me was this idea of connecting without language. You know, how can we really, we're, we're living in a world that's very much tied to the spoken word, right? And in some spaces, often in the organizational space as well, there's a lot of discomfort around no speaking. So... Uh, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about your thoughts on like how we do connect beyond the linguistic or conversational space. Yeah. Well, I think it's so important. Um, And actually one really powerful way that I connected with people in 2013, which is I came up with this thing called tethering. When I said tether, people, people would know that it meant let's hold hands. So it was it was a way of of grounding me to the the earth. I may have been going through a particularly intense vision at the time, and I was like tether, and that would bring me back to here and now, the the room, the floor, the other people, just being connected. So the physical that physical connection can be a, a great way of non verbally um, connecting, which make is even you know, more difficult now <laughs> that we're going through this co- this COVID crisis, which, uh, but there are, there are other ways to uh, connect non-verbally. And, and as far as this, how this applies to the rest of society, the more kind of this work on connectedness and, uh, you know, whether it's peer-to-peer or um, just us as a community, anybody, um, I've noticed more and more how disconnected we've become as a society, especially in our Western culture, where it's normal to walk down the street and not acknowledge people as you walk by them. You don't talk to people on the subway or the bus or the plane, <laughs> airplane. And that to me is not normal necessarily. It's not healthy it's just some where we've gone with our highly individualistic culture. And I think that leads actually leads to a lot of mental health issues is this profound sense of disconnection that we have, but we, we all can play a role in changing that. It's very simple. It's saying hi to someone as you walk by, it's acknowledging them with eye contact or a smile or 
just acknowledging their existence in some way. You know, we we have the power to do that. And it could be a conversation that you have with someone, but it could just be that you are present and acknowledge someone else's existence. That is super powerful. And, and we have control over that. Yeah, it's really well said. I mean, I think sometimes it feels like we're trying to come up with these really complex solutions to... You know, and, and there are complex challenges in our society, but coming up with complex solutions to some of these challenges, whether it's like governmented fund, government funded programs and, and community spaces and all of this stuff, which are really important, but it's also super important to, to sort of come back to the basics, like what you said, which is like, okay, let's, we can do a few things in our daily life without radically changing, you know, radically knocking down the house um, or the foundation. And also from an individual perspective, that's really interesting that we often think about how we contribute to other people's lives through official or formal things like volunteering or donating funds or things like that. But there's also these, again, these smaller ways that we can contribute to each other's lives in a meaningful way and actually really make a difference. Do we have anything else besides our moment-to-moment existence and how we, how we relate to others? Sure, that could be involve, involve some you know, big political organizing or uh, the work that you do or whatever it is, but what is that? All of that is just moment to moment interacting with others. And so if we can do that in a way that's really present and acknowledging others, then what else, what else is there? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And it's really, it's very well said, very like sort of, again, getting back to the basics, like all of these, regardless of regardless of the profession that we're in or regardless of our um, the role that we have in the organizational space. I mean, a lot of what we do on a day-to-day basis is connections, connections with people. And the more that we can deepen that and give that multiple dimensions and move beyond sort of like perhaps a default mode or a mode of shutting down and move a little bit more into opening up, that's really can make a huge difference, even though it seems like a small thing. Yeah. And I would add to that. um, It's not just the day-to-day moment-to-moment with other people. It's also with the environment with, um, because we're, I I think as humans, we're like it or not, we're a part of something much bigger than us right now, because we're so disconnected. uh, We're destroying the planet basically. Uh, which you know is our mother basically it's it's it allows us life uh this planet that we're a part of and so this connection also involves be feeling more connected to the earth and if we feel more connected to like just like if we feel more connected to another person we're going to care more about that person and we're going to want to take care of that person if we feel connected to the earth, then we're going to naturally feel like we want to take care of the earth and do things that don't destroy the earth. (laughs) Um, 
and come to this kind of greater consciousness that we need to do that. Um, so yeah, it goes, I think it goes a beyond human relations, but also, you know, it could be even a bigger thing of, uh, making sure that we have a, a place that's hospitable to life uh, for future generations. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, one of the other things that I wanted to bring up or one of the themes that came up for me is this idea of um, you had mentioned unresolved trauma, right, from your childhood. And it's one of the themes that comes up in the podcast. I think we talk about sort of in the breakdown moment, a lot of times, like the concept of breakdown, wake up is that the wake up is actually the wisdom that's within the breakdown. So a lot of times people talk about their challenging experiences, and then they realize that when they dive into like sort of curiously understanding those, that there's this wake up, waking up of wisdom. And a lot of this, not all of it, but you know, a few stories goes back to this processing in some way of trauma. It could be from childhood, but it could also be from other periods in the adult life. And it's interesting. One thing that you mentioned was this idea that like your system going into these altered states was an attempt, you know, a healthy attempt to resolve the trauma, these core themes in your childhood. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm curious, like, a little bit more on um, this idea of altered states or, 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 you know, different ways of our bodies and our minds trying to go into that space of resolving trauma. When you think about it, it's a, it's a part of our human adaptation to have the ability to go somewhere else when something is too overwhelming to process in uh, kind of real time. So I, I see it as a protective thing. It's too much. So let's go somewhere else to, to process this right, right now. And you, you often hear of like the classic example is someone who's being physically or sexually abused who um, is able to go to an altered state to get away from that trauma or abuse. Um, so off, whether it's hearing voices or having a vision or um, you know, going into a completely different altered state. Now, is that crazy? Is that crazy? No, no. You in that context, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to say that's crazy. That's, that's protective. That's an adaptation. But similarly, you know, trauma is experienced differently. What, what's traumatic for me may not be traumatic for you. What's traumatic for you may not be traumatic for me. And um, the trauma of my parents divorcing and the trauma of potentially getting divorced myself was just too much for me to deal with in, in regular reality. So I create, you know, so this adaptation, this protect, protective mechanism puts me into an altered state where I can more uh, process this uh, in a different state. And then, and then, 
you know, I've been lucky to be able to kind of integrate the two to be able to learn from the altered states, but then also learn how maybe I can deal with some tough stuff without having to go to an altered state. So it's not that, you know, one is bad or one is good or, you know, they just, they're different and they have different um, kind of ramifications. You know, if I go into an altered state where I'm, you know, it's difficult for me to get back through that barrier that puts that puts a lot of strain on myself, puts a lot of strain on my relationships. You know, if it's not something that we've chosen to do <laughs> together and explore, and I don't really want to go there anymore. Um, but you know, there are some people that do this on purpose. You know, they go to they'll go on a vi- you know Native Americans call them vision quests. Um, and they're guided by shamans and people don't eat and don't sleep for a couple of days and maybe take some substances to help them get into these states. And they learn, they learn things and they process things and they, you know, that they go through it and there's retreats where people do this on purpose. So, um, but again, it's guided and it's intentional and everybody around knows what's going on. I, my experiences were not guided uh, I did have some ECPR people supporting me, which was super helpful, but it wasn't like it was, was this intentional thing that I went through. It, I just kind of had to try to figure it out. <laughs> and the people around me had to kind of try to figure it out. Yeah. What's your, what's your vision for like, you know, if we go, if we talk about going intentionally into altered states and like, what's your vision for the future of supporting um, people who you know, don't intentionally go into an altered state, but their system goes into this protective place. How can how can we as a society best design supportive environments to yeah to help facilitate that process rather than what you said in the beginning about the hospitals were just trying to stop the process? I, I envision a society where we learn more about these experiences and mind states and just be with them and not try to change it. Um, but bring your whole self into it. Um, and, and, and be curious and say, Oh, well, this person is going through something. What can I learn from what they're going through? Cause there's usually a lot to be learned, not just for the person who's experiencing it, but for the people around them. Oftentimes the experience reflects problems in our society or problems in our community or problems in our family that we can all, we can all learn from. But I envision a society that's more like indigenous cultures where if someone's going through an extreme state, people don't freak out. People are like, Oh, what's going on? This is an important moment in this person's life. What, what can we as a community learn? How can we, how can we be supportive and how can we surround this person with love and support rather than trying to make the make it go away? Um, we found in our Western culture, the more that we try to make these experiences go away, the more that they start to happen. The more they happen because we don't we don't we don't do the learning part. We we do the let's get rid of it part, and then more and more people are struggling. You know, I think about suicide comes to mind where. Uh, you know, we, it's such a focus on the individual and what's wrong with this person that they don't want to live 
um, and let's get them help and treatment and uh, maybe we'll find the right drug or um, rather than saying what is going on in our society where so many people are feeling like they don't want to be here? How can we improve? How can we create a healthier community where people want to be living and alive? And um, why aren't we having that conversation with people who are suicidal? Uh, let's do this together, create a healthier community. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be learned um, from these experiences. It's a really good point you make also that there's an there's always an element because we are embedded in a particular context, society, family system, organization, that we pick up on the challenges of that system as human beings, because we are sensitive to that, especially the sort of emotional relational aspects of those systems. And to only sort of pinpoint the problem or challenge on the person who's feeling the alarm, the alarm signal, is then ignoring the broader systemic problem. So if we think about this, I mean, I think this is definitely present in family systems. You can also see this in organizations, not just with people experiencing extreme states, but also things like the phenomenon of burnout or the phenomenon of um, people needing to take leave or, you know, we can even talk about physical illness, but these are, these are things that are happening inside of individuals, but they're very much reflecting a, a broader systemic breakdown that, again, if we tap into those individual stories and experiences, we then may get the wisdom to change the system. Right. Yep, exactly. Yeah, wow. And I and like speaking of sort of organizational change as well, that piece that was really interesting that you mentioned when you were in the peer respite center and you wanted to go back to work and get back to work. I thought that was also a really interesting point that you made and I'm curious yeah, what what was it about getting back to work for you that was really important or that where that motivation was coming from in that place that you were in? Well, I, I think I'm very lucky to have a job that I am very passionate about. And, you know, ever since 1999, where I went through my first altered state, I've gotten involved with this type of work. And it's a part of my healing. You know, it's a part of it's a part of being well. Me being well is doing this work that I think I'm meant to do, having a purpose. And so I just want, you know, when I don't want to sit around all day and do nothing. <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, smoke cigarettes and watch TV. I want to, I want to get back to work. And that's where, that's where I was, you know, that's where the, my mindset was, let's, let's get back to work. Nice. And it's so cool that you're, you know, you're in this organization that really honors also that wish and trusts you that you have a sense that you're ready to go back to work rather than, you know, assessing your ability to work based on a diagnosis or some sort of standard protocol. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Oryx, for sharing your story on the show. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm, I look forward to uh, 
seeing how it comes out. And um, yeah, I really enjoyed our conversation. So thanks. I'm so grateful for my conversation with Oryx. There's so many really rich themes that are coming up in this conversation, and I think a lot that many of us can relate to. Even if you or I have not experienced something like an extreme state or something categorized as psychosis, I think many of us have that experience of somehow escaping our own reality because it's too overwhelming. And that protective mechanism within us to to do so, to go somewhere else, either in our own minds or to physically remove ourselves, is a way of processing or a way of, it's a way of coming to terms with things that seem unsolvable. And so when we look at experiences like psychosis or like extreme states or altered states as these places to escape, but also places that have rich, meaningful, symbolic content that allows us to tap into those memories or themes or experiences that in our normal waking consciousness, would be too much to handle. This is an amazing source of knowledge. But like Oryx said, it's this experience of being a psychonaut, of traveling to other places far, far outside of our waking consciousness in order to gather that wisdom and integrate it into our lives. But we haven't, as a society, developed the practices, especially in Western society, we haven't developed the practices that allow us to curiously dive in and be with each other in these states and gather that symbolic wisdom and and connect it to how we can behave and how we can connect in consensus reality. And that's why the Breakdown Wake Up program and podcast and philosophy is so important today because not only is denying these experiences and trying to escape them, it's causing us more pain, but also we miss out on the wisdom that lies within those experiences. So the approach to breakdown wake up is really about saying, wow, if there is a breakdown, There is a real reason, there is real wisdom waking up in this experience. And if we can look into that more curiously, and if we can be with those feelings and be with those experiences in a compassionate way, then we can find the wisdom. And through that compassion, we can be more flexible in our behavior. So we can be both compassionate for what is, how we feel in the moment, and also ready to get into action to change our behaviors when we learn the lessons from that wisdom waking up. One of the themes that came up for me when I listened back to this conversation is about this idea of being grounded in the physical reality versus being taken into our, I guess, less grounded states of 
deep into our thinking process, or it could be, you know, those times when we feel really philosophical, we might feel less connected to the physical present moment. I think especially when we're used to spending so much time, many of us, behind a computer screen, that that experience of going beyond what is right in front of us in the physical world, in the physical space, it happens so fast. And so that's a small example of this escaping or a leave-taking of, of this physical reality that we're, we're in. And what Oryx, you know, Oryx's travel, his psychonaut travel is really going outside of that realm in a waking state. It's almost like a waking dream. But he talks about these ways that he is able to, even in that extreme state, ground himself in physical reality and get connected to the people around him. So he talks about um, physical touch and physical connection being something that grounds him. He also talks about how this eating, that that was able to ground him and bring him back in connection with the people around him and outside of his processing, his visions, and his journey outside of this realm. And I think also really present attention, being fully present and and having the attention from someone can also ground us back into the current moment. And again, I've not had an experience in an extreme state like Oryx mentions, but I can definitely relate to that feeling of being ungrounded and trying to find practices and ways to bring myself back to the present moment. And for me, sometimes that also includes physical exercise, the practice of walking or running or feeling my body really brings me back into feeling grounded. I think for those of us who have really also very active cognitive functions, very much go into our imagination space or we can go into an analytical place in our minds, you know, we can go way, way far, far away from where we physically are. And that's amazing. It's really incredible for for productivity and for working on something, but it often also takes us outside of our where we are in the physical location, our physical body. So it's also really good to bring ourselves back into the felt sense, into our into where we are. I think another theme that came up in Oryx and my conversation that is also a theme in a few other episodes is this idea that as a leader, we put pressure on ourselves to do and to perform and to be everything. We can tend to not ask for the help that we need. That's that whole theme again about this misconception that leaders are invulnerable and can do everything. The reality is the vulnerability, the need for help, the the ability to express our needs as leaders, as high performers in companies, as, as human beings is so important. So for Oryx, his tendency not to ask for help in this leadership role was something that he actually transformed through this breakdown. That was part of the wisdom that was coming up for him was that it was important for him 
to ask for help, to delegate, to not take everything on himself. I think another really interesting theme in this conversation is something that Oryx brings up around the relationship between how connected we feel to something and our investment and caring for that something. So he uses this amazing metaphor between, you know, if we are connected to someone that we tend, we're more likely to invest our time in them, you know, maybe help them out and also care for them. And he draws this amazing parallel between that understanding and our connection to the environment, to nature. And that if we feel connected to nature, to our environment, then we feel more likely to invest time and money to care for that environment. But I'd like to take it a step further and bring it back to ourselves. The more that we are connected to ourselves, the more that we feel connected, compassionate, and we have a strong relationship with ourselves, the more likely we are to invest in ourselves and really care for ourselves, take those actions, take the time, spend the money that's required to really take care of ourselves so that we can flourish. And when we are disconnected from ourselves, the opposite happens. We tend not to take the time. We tend not to care. We tend to not prioritize ourselves in our own lives. And then things like a busy work life or, or a family life or a large social atmosphere can just take over. And then we lose ourselves. But again, that's usually when the breakdown comes into play to remind us of our need to connect with ourselves, to develop that connection and to invest in that relationship with ourselves. The final theme that came up for me that I wanted to mention was when we have these breakdowns in our society, that it's still, there's still some shame or weakness around them. Oryx brings up this experience that when he had his own extreme state, that even though his colleagues and his, you know, the CEO of the company were really supportive of him, that they all decided to be quite secret about his experience for fear, not of, you know, the organization itself was fine with his experience, but they were afraid that if word got out that he as the chief operating officer was going through this extreme state, that it could look bad for the organization. It's really interesting that he mentions, you know, shortly after they were quite secret about it, that his story got put into this documentary film, which of course was shared with the entire world. I think it's something for us to look at that what is this about going into an extreme state that is so scandalous, that is so is something to keep our mouths shut about. Again, if we look at it as a mechanism in our bodies that not only help us help protect us from events that are too hard for us to handle, but they also help us process and integrate those, those really challenging traumatic events. What is shameful about that? 
what is shameful about that productive way of of healing? For me, I think it comes down to understanding and the narrative that our society has created around these experiences. The fear of misunderstanding what's going on for someone and our own discomfort with states of consciousness or states of being that are outside of our normal waking consciousness. But I think this is shifting as there is a lot of attention being paid now to the value of things like psychedelic experiences or things like holotropic breath work that, as Oryx mentioned, people choose to go into an altered state in order to heal, in order to process old traumas and old wounds in order to experience different ways of being. I see this shift and I can see the connection between this curiosity about going into altered states through the use of plant medicines or breathing techniques or fasting and the value that really lies within breakdown experiences like extreme states that could be called psychosis. So if you're listening and you yourself have had some sort of an experience like this, you recognize what Oryx is saying. Or if you sense that a family member or a friend of yours or maybe a colleague is going through an experience like this and you want to get more support and just have someone to, to connect with, please reach out to me. Thanks again for listening to this episode. I'm really curious to hear what resonates for you and what insights you have, so please feel free to share them with me. And again, if you're a passion-driven professional who's also experiencing some anxiety or depression or distress, and you want to learn how to transform this energy, this pain, from a barrier into a catalyst for your personal and professional growth, check out the website or contact me and find out more about this amazing Breakdown Wake Up program that's launching very soon. If you like what you just heard, please check out our website at www.breakdownwakeup.com. If you subscribe to our mailing list, you'll get weekly updates about episodes and special events. We also have a growing community of people who are getting excited about this concept and sharing their own thoughts and reactions. Finally, if you're trying to discover the underlying wisdom within your own breakdown and need some help, we've designed special programs to help do just that. Thanks again for listening. And remember, when things are breaking down, important wisdom is waking up.